Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earl. We're here today with Matthew R.K. to talk about his book, Not Light, But Fire, How to Lead Meaningful Race Conversations in the Classroom. Matt is a founding teacher of English at the Science Leadership Academy in Philadelphia, and he's also the founder and executive director of the Philly Slam League. And he's been leading race conversations in his classroom, testing different ways of having these conversations with teenagers to push themselves and think about race in a new and more meaningful way. We're going to talk about some of the big problems that occur when adults try to have race conversations with teenagers. We're going to see why sometimes our instincts about how to discuss race-related issues with teenagers are totally off base and can send us into negative, scary territory. Matt is going to show us how getting kids talking about their feelings and how they feel about issues and whether issues are right or whether they're wrong can turn into arguments really fast, never changes anybody's mind, and is really not a productive use of time. Instead, we need to use some techniques that Matt's going to share with us to keep kids focused on specific issues and facts and using evidence to back up their claims. It's simple, but it is not easy. Thankfully, he's got some tips and tricks that can help all of us lead more effective race conversations in the classroom, in the living room, or anywhere that we're talking to teens. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I read through this book, Not Light, But Fire, How to Lead Meaningful Race Conversations in the Classroom. And this is, it sounds like something you've been really thinking about and working on for a long time in your own classroom. And I wonder what inspired you to write this book or to put all these ideas together and, um, and, and what, why was this, um, you know, the time to do it? Well, I, um, have been having race conversations with my students for my whole career. And, um, I happened to, before the book came out, I've been leading a few professional development at our school's, um, conference, cool. um, that, that we run. And when Stenhouse house was looking for someone to write the book, they called my principal and my principal happened to know that I had done a professional development on it. So he asked me um, if I'd be interested in writing the book. And so just very good luck. So talk to me a little about the book or how did it, how'd you decide what to, what was important to talk about or how to, you know, set it up and what to include and all that. Well, I was just trying to make something useful. A lot of the stuff that's out there, you know, at its core about, um, convincing people to have conversations about race in the classroom, uh, not as much about how. And so I wanted to get past the why and actually spend very little time on why and just yeah. focus on how. And so 
you know, because I figured, like, especially if you're living in these times right now and you still need the why, there's nothing that I can say to you. <laughs> um, and if you're picking um, up a book about it, it would seem like you're probably already convinced. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, exactly. So I figured I'd, I'd kind of skip that step and get into, like, here are some practical things that have worked for me and some things that I've done that have not worked. And so maybe you can make a different mistake and not make the same one. I found some really interesting things in this book, man. And one of them, I thought, you know, you talk about this idea of like creating a safe space. Teachers are always trying to say, you know, hey, this is a safe space. We can talk about whatever we want in here. Um, and a lot of times that it, 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 it isn't actually true or like just saying the words that doesn't just magically like make it a safe space. <laughs> and, um I wonder what, like, why do we think that we can just hand wave and magically create that atmosphere? And what, what are we missing? I think that the, you know, why we do it because it's just something we're told to do. Um, and something we, we know that we, how we want kids to feel in yeah. the classroom. But we don't know exactly how to do that right um and i think that like we'll know we want them to feel you know safe around us you know ready to be vulnerable all of those things and we think that just telling them that we're good people will, <laughs> will accomplish that yeah, i think that's important like i don't want to like poo-poo the idea of you telling your students hey i'm not homophobic i am not a racist i am not like those are things that are important for kids to hear so yeah i'm not i don't, I don't want to be dismissive of it but that's only about 10 percent of the work like a lot of people those yeah. things are easy to say right. um but what are you doing to make sure that you know beyond just saying it because yeah we deal a lot with parent issues and i see this at all all kinds of families as well where parents are like no no, no i told my kid you know you can talk to me about anything you can tell me anything you know it's it's okay <laughs> it's like we want to create that safe space where Kids feel like they can, you know, bring up any issues and talk about anything, but just saying it doesn't make it happen. It's actually kind of work to create it. So what's like, how, how do we do that? Or how do we actually create a real safe space instead of just um, saying that it is one? Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, you, have to, you don't have to do the things that I suggest in the book, but that's a starting place. You know, it has to be an environment where kids know that they're going to be listened to and an environment where um, you've worked on some of the relationships that are in the space so that the level of the relationship matches the level of the conversation. Like you can't have rich conversations amongst people who don't have rich relationships. Uh... It has to be equal or close to equal. It won't be all the way, but you have to somewhat, if you're going to go there, then you have to have enough of the relationships between the kids that are ready to go there i'm not going to be vulnerable with you if i if i don't know you and a lot of times we skip that part like we just assume that right. kids are going to want to do the hard work of investigating their privileges or investigating any of those kind of things um yeah. we assume that they'll they'll do that because we tell them to right um and that's not there's a certain amount of things that we can do to make sure that that is an easier process.
what are some of those things? Well, I, you know, I talk about in the book, uh, like activities, like high grade compliments and, and um, those kind of activities. So, you know, making sure that kids, you know, you set up structure for them to get to know each other for the relationship part. And then the yeah. listening part, the listening part, just breaking listening down into a set of discrete skills that can be practiced. Oh yeah. Because we all say, Oh, I'm a good listener. Nobody's like, nobody mm-hmm. says they're a bad listener. <laughs> you know, everyone, everyone thinks, Oh yeah. Oh, I'm good at that. Yeah. 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 I do that. Yeah. Sorry. What was that? Um, and it's like, it's not easy actually. And we can feel it when we know people who are really good listeners and it feels really good to talk to them. Whereas we know people who are not good listeners, but it's kind of uh, difficult to assess in yourself. Yeah. And it's one of the more important things. Like when you ask kids, what makes you feel safest in the classroom? One of the first things they say is when I feel listened to. Uh, like it's not a minor skill like if yeah. kids feel listened to they feel safe if they don't feel listened, like authentically listened to like if they don't feel listened to they don't feel safe it's one of the basic things that will lead to the outcome that you want out of any meaningful conversation so you talked about breaking that up into more kind of specific skills what does that look like, or how do you how do you see that? Well, in the in the book, I talk about listening patiently, listening actively, and placing your voice. Those are the three skills that I use in the book, and just working those as you know things that the kids are aware of, like how am I listening right now? How can I be better at listening? And creating like by by talking specifically about those skills, and then you kind of give them names like that. And I like how you do that in the book. And then you can bring that up, like policing your voice, and people can notice when they're not doing that. And by kind of talking about it and putting names on it like that, you sort of like start to bring awareness to it in a really mm-hmm. cool way. So, what does that mean, policing your voice? It means making sure that you are not taking up all the space in the room, making sure you're not like making sure you're not the only voice that's speaking, um, making yeah. sure that voices that need to be centered end up being centered in the conversation. Cause you always get those few kids in the class who are really kind of outgoing or aggressive or something like that, who sort of like, and it's easy to dominate the discussion as a teacher. And then a lot of people don't get hurt. talked about um something called a high grade compliment mm-hmm. which i thought was a really cool concept from your book can you explain what that means and how we do that yeah it's an idea um i took from a colleague um named zach chase and he used to do this in his classroom for the kids okay. to um to take, take a chance to share something that they appreciate about each other they they share it publicly. Um, it's just a way to for the kids to build relationships with with each other and make it. It's, it's a little bit harder to level a bunch of like accusations and stuff like that when you just had those kind of interactions. But so, what separates a high grade compliment from a low grade compliment, or just an average compliment? 
yeah, the other ones are like, I like your shoes or you have a good smile. And the other okay. one is like, I, a high grade is more, I appreciate what you did for me that time where you helped me with blah, 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 those kind of things. You model it and then we practice it and go ahead and do it. Um, yeah. It's just like, you know, minor compliments are good. But then like when you, you know, when you compliment someone's character or some or show appreciation for something they've done, then that's something about who they are, what they, the way they behave instead of like a surface level characteristic. Yep. And you also said a little bit about how it affected you kind of, or uh, yeah, you said that you really appreciated it when they did, you know, some certain things. So instead of just saying like, Hey, you're really nice or you're really friendly. You had a, you know, a specific, like um, a specific thing that they did and how um, that made you feel good. Oh yeah. Yeah. How it made them. Yeah. Yeah. When you're given a compliment, it's like, um, how did it make you when they did the thing? How did it make you feel? How much do you appreciate it? Those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And uh, I think parents can always do more of that. You know, we get, um, so much of the time we're telling our teenagers what they should do better or what they need to improve on. And that's, that's valuable and stuff as well. But, um, I think we often neglect those taking the time to voice just what we appreciate about them and what, how they're doing things that make us feel really good. So you talk about something in your book, uh, a term that you refer to as house talk. Mm-hmm. What is what is that? And uh, how does that work? House talk is it's the kind of relationships that we want. So that's why we do the high grade compliments and all that stuff. House talk is the way you speak with family that makes it different than how you speak with friends and colleagues and stuff like that. And so you do those kind of activities because race conversations require those kind of relationships not actual family relationships, but as close as they can be within a classroom setting. And, you know, those aren't natural. So you have to make them happen so that the kids can trust each other and stuff like that. And so you do those kind of activities to make sure that they do that. And do you like label things as house talk when they're um, discussing them or? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, that's, I don't know how often I use that phrase with kids but it's just how I, that's how I describe the relationships. I love how you broke down the high grade compliments in your book. You had kind of four, four notes about it. One is a proximity. You ask them to sit across from the recipient eye to eye and yeah, not standing over a seated classmate because you want it to be really like equal body language. I thought that was cool. And just really focusing on the tone of voice, speaking earnestly and making it, about about the other person rather than about yourself Mm -hmm. Um, yeah you know i love having you in my math groups you help me on my projects is is good but then sometimes then people will like launch into a story about you know because i always struggled with math and blah, blah 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 and start making it about yourself instead of like keeping it focused on the other person yeah so that i think these these are really good points that you have in here
on page 43, um, you talk about if we get too, if a teacher is too heavy handed, he risks provoking a you need to sit down response for many students either seek sink deeper into the seats and prepare to cry or prepare themselves to operate as if under threat to fight or fly to forcefully mark out their territory. There's also a temptation to disengage entirely. Oh, you mean, you know, when you give someone bad news and you're like, okay, I need you to sit down, like someone hey, died or something. Brace yourself. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. And so that that's what I mean. Like sometimes you're going into a conversation and you're like, you, we might oversell um, or when we say you need to sit down or say something like that or we, we like need to that. talk about something serious here. Yeah. You know? we need to, a lot of times we need to have an important conversation. <laughs> a lot of times we're going to lose the kids before they we even start because mm. um, you're going to engage the part of them that says, nah, I don't want to be a part of this. I got enough going on with my life right now. I don't want to do all this. And so we want to pay close attention to, you know, the mood that we set before we get into a conversation. Uh, but then so we also don't want to catch people off guard and get into some to topic that sort of people aren't prepared for or something so yeah. how do we what's the balance or how do we kind of prepare them but not trigger too much of that um sit down response well that is the balance though i mean there's, there's no easy way i get it out of few things okay. but that is the balance like we want to make sure that we work on our ability to discern what is important when is a moment for us to prep them, you know, and how to prep them. Like we're in a world right now that wants a trigger warning in front of just about everything. Yeah, so yeah, right. That can you backfire. might be offended. Yeah. Look out. <laughs> but that can backfire because sometimes we we provoke that, you know, because we oriented that way, we provoke that kind of response when sometimes that wouldn't have been a natural response. Like a kid would have been cool. But because yeah. you told them that they were going to be offended, they got offended. Or you told them they were yeah, going to be yeah. hurt, so they got hurt. Like it's it's a sometimes you know how we prime kids for conversation really matters. Um, and sometimes that priming can go overboard or not be enough, and that's where the challenge is. Yeah, it's like when you get a toddler who like scrapes their knee, and then they like look up to mom or dad to see like uh are, are you worried about this and then if you are then they start crying but if not then they kind of just are like okay it's no big deal like they are our our own attitude towards something like really um kind of sets the sets the tone or um it influences the the kids in the room a lot You're talking about Silberman and Hansberg in this section of mindful orientation. And that's sort of, I guess, like orienting them to the conversation as you're kind of getting into it. And then you also have this, uh, this section about summary, effective summary, which I thought was really cool and helpful. And a lot of what I saw you doing in your examples in the book were like, you were summarizing what kids were saying, but you were also like putting it into better words or sort of like toning things down in certain ways and um like focusing on sort of like the essence of their argument instead of like parts that might like make the conversation go in directions that you don't want it to go like what can you talk a little bit about summary or how you use summary like that to really um keep a conversation on track 
yeah, you just want to make sure that you do keep it on track. Like as a, you know, especially in whole class conversations, you want to make sure that you have a lot of power in your reprompting. Like once a kid says something, you have a lot of power on like what the next thing is. Like you take a little part of what they're saying and redirect it to the rest of the class. Um, do you want to turn up certain parts of what they said and turn down certain parts of what they said, depending on what they said, um, to kind of keep things scholarly? Um, I'm always trying to keep things scholarly and not, you know, I'm not trying to take the emotion out of things because emotion is good, but I want to keep it scholarly. And if it goes to a place where it's just, where it stops being scholarly, then I want to try to tone that part down and turn up the part where there's, you know, research and inquiry and all those things that we want students to be doing and turn down the part that's just like, I'm just sharing my opinion that's based on nothing. Um, that doesn't have... <laughs> right now that's kind of overvalued both like in the world and in classrooms where people are just like sharing their opinion that's based on nothing and i want your classroom to not be and sometimes people do that have a good heart they're like i want student voice and all that kind of stuff but sure i think they're i think they're misguided um when we're in a place where we just have the open sharing of opinions that aren't based on anything like no one gets smarter doing that no one gets better Hey, we're here with Matthew R.K. talking about how to lead meaningful race conversations with teenagers. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. And I think that a lot of times the way we discuss race kind of mirrors Thomas Jefferson, where you're in a space of like, every time we discuss race, it's always hardship and oppression. And it's never yeah. celebration, stuff like that. And so just making sure that teachers make space for celebration in their curriculum. And it's not just, you know, racism, 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 racism. Even though I'm not saying don't talk about racism, I'm saying that sure. let racism not suffocate all of the stories that people of color, what's going on now won't last. You know, racism will be here for a thousand years, but the current yeah. moment and energy, you know, that's not permanent. A lot of times kids, you know, whenever race is discussed or any, you know, by extension, any sensitive subject, it's only ever discussed. The methodology is a debate. And so, like, it's always the lens of, like, I need to convince somebody else of something else. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's something wrong with it. I think the only lens through which you discuss sensitive issues. Like if you're discussing abortion, yeah. it's a debate. If you're discussing gender, sexuality, it's a debate. If you're discussing race, yeah. it's a debate. It's always a debate. And it's, which means every time the issue comes up, kids are conditioned. Like I need to convince someone of something. Yeah. A lot of times they're nowhere near the position or knowledgeable enough to be convincing anybody of anything. Um, because like I said earlier, the conversations haven't been scholarly. It's just kind of like, what do you feel? Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening.